Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Nir Shafir. The topic of our discussion today is Slaves in Sigils of Ottoman Galata. Our guest is Dr. Noor Sobers Khan. Noor, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Sobers Khan currently is a curator of the Ottoman Collection at the Museum of Islamic Art in Qatar. She was also formerly a curator at the British Library for their Persian Manuscripts Collection, and she holds a PhD from Cambridge University Department of Oriental Studies. Her dissertation, which is the subject of today's conversation and has recently been published as a book, was entitled Slaves Without Shackles. And it's a micro-study of slavery and manumission in the Galata Para region of Ottoman Istanbul. Now, in a previous episode, we've done a discussion about slavery in a global context, comparing the Atlantic world with the Mediterranean world, with the Black Sea, and sort of looked at a very broad perspective on slavery and its different manifestations. Today, we're going to do the opposite and put a particular, let's say, slave community under the microscope. So, Noor, your study, which deals with a narrow time frame, 12 years from uh, 1560 to 1572, and is based mainly on Sharia sigils, looks at this community all based in Galata. Before we talk about their lives and their experience and how we can study the, the, the lives of Ottoman slaves, why don't you talk about where this community comes from, both you know what regions do they hail from and how do they end up living in Ottoman Galata? Okay, well, basically, I studied a population of about 600 slaves, primarily male, um, who show up in the Galata Sigils uh, in this very brief time period um, that I chose to concentrate on. I originally wanted to look at um, slavery in the entire Eastern Mediterranean over like a century and, uh, and round up having to narrow, <laughs> narrow down considerably. Um, so the, this particular group of slaves are fascinating because, I mean, basically, I went to the Müftülük when it was still, you could still pull out defters, like the physical defters, mm. and they would just hand them to you and you would look at them. And I was just basically searching for anything related to slaves. And so, you know, I would read through, I don't know, like the Besiktas, Sigilleri, and you would find like a slave manumission every few pages. Um, when I got to the Galata Sigils, I found that the first, uh, sort of the first three or four, basically contained uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of slave manumissions. I mean, it was really an exceptional kind of set of documents. There could be others that I didn't come across. Yeah, of but, course. Yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, waiting for, for some intrepid researcher to, to discover. But, um, but these are the ones that I uh, stumbled upon. And um, I chose to focus on, on this brief time period because of this really large population of slaves. And you asked me where they're from. Um, one of the pieces of information that we find in the sigils is actually their asil or jeans, sort of their, their origins. And they're, I would say about, uh, I mean, I have the exact percentages and numbers in my dissertation um, for those who are interested. But I, I would say they're about 60% um, Southern Mediterranean, so described as Efringi, so probably Romance-speaking, either Italian or Spanish. or um, And uh, I would say the other groups are primarily Rus, so that's how they're described in the mm -hmm. sigils. So they are from... Um, you know, the Polish-Lithuanian, Ukrainian general area. And then we also have um, other slaves from the Black Sea, such as Mingrelians and Abkhazians, mm -hmm. and, you know, the occasional Ethiopian, the occasional Hindi or Indian. So, I mean, you have uh, a wide mix of 
groups of origins of ethnicities, if you want to call them that, but primarily they're from the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. So, and we have to assume they've been captured in these mm. maritime arenas, right? That is indeed my assumption. I mean, I mentioned before, I don't really have any uh, kind of documentary evidence for how they were captured. But by looking at the kinds of work they were engaged in in Galata, almost all of them, in some respects, were engaged in seafaring or shipbuilding or the the kind of maritime economy of Galata in some respect they were attached to it so it's possible to conjecture that many of them might have been taken during sea battles my main conjecture is that in 1560 the battle of Jarba in Tunisia mm-hmm. of course is a famous victory for the Ottomans where they capture um, the Spanish fleet and uh, you have de Busbeck who talks about the parade of, of captives coming back from this particular battle and that many of them were, were enslaved and and you know, made to work in the the Tarsane, which of course is right right by Galata. So my conjecture is that many of these slaves who show up in Galata right after the Battle of Jarba may very well have been captured in that battle. But this is, um, you know, I would love to come across a document that actually says that. Yeah. This is just my guess. And this uh, this uh, question of slavery, of course, mm. adds another layer of complexity to the larger question of. Mm-hmm. Um, the porous boundary between the Christian Mm. and Muslim worlds and the early Mm. modern Mediterranean. That's something that we've dealt with in previous episodes Mm. of the podcast. Of course, Emre Safagur Khan Mm -hmm. has talked about it in some of his episodes Mm -hmm. and his Mm -hmm. research. These um, seamen who Mm. uh, one day are on a uh, Spanish ship and because of something that Mm. happens, end up becoming Mm. part of a Muslim crew. And there's all sorts of interesting stories there. One thing about religion that's quite interesting is that you have... um, Uh, you can kind of trace to some degree the rates of conversion among the slave population. Now, of course, it's always difficult to do a kind of statistical study based on the sigils because we don't know how representative the uh, slaves who show up in the sigils are of the greater population. Um, It could be that slaves who convert got manumitted faster and so they're more represented among the, the manumission documents. But you can nonetheless get an idea of who was converting. And a lot of the slaves who are manumitted, um, particularly, I mean, various types of manumission, um, the ones who are manumitted for charitable reasons rather than for the work that they've completed, typically tend to have converted. And Black Sea slaves, in contrast to Frankish slaves, tend to convert at almost a rate of 100%, whereas the Frankish slaves, the Efringi ones, convert at a much, much lower rate. And so there are all sorts of reasons you can conjecture as to why that's the case. Uh, when Chris was uh, talking, about, introducing this topic, he was mentioned talking about you know a community of slaves in Galata, mm-hmm. uh, and the, you know this what you just mentioned now that you know that there's different community uh, that there's different mm-hmm. people coming from Black Sea, mm-hmm. from these Efringis and other places. How much did slaves in Galata actually form a a cohesive community in a sense? All right, that's a really good question. I mean, you can't get a sense of that from studying the sigils. I don't think, I mean, in my experience. But we do have a couple of uh, captivity accounts, such as that of Michael Hebrew, which I rely on very, very heavily. Um, it's from a slightly later period. I think it's about 50 years later than the period that I study. But you can still get a decent idea of how slaves kind of interacted with each other. Um, it does seem that there, I mean, 
it's difficult to really form a community if you're just being forced into labor. Um, but they did kind of depend on each other for certain things, for ways of acquiring food, for, um, you know, different uh, tricks or, or, you know, I mean, also just for moral support. Um, and they tended to band together. And my impression is according to sort of their linguistic proclivities, like basically who can you talk to? And that's who you kind of make friends with among a group of slaves. But in terms of a, a community, really, um, that I'm not, I mean, that, that really requires further study. Yeah. Well, and presumably if they're all employed in similar yeah. industries, that might add a little more cohesiveness in that case. Yes, yeah. But you don't see in the, like, in the sigils, like, this slave arguing with that slave, or that, you know, they're not represented like that in the sigils? Right, well, maybe I should just say a brief word about how they're represented in the sigils, which is a little bit boring, but might be of interest to, um, I don't know, other uh, weirdos like me who really find legal formulary absolutely fascinating. So the... Um, the sigils, the information about slaves in the sigils is really very abundant. It's, it's huge amounts of information, not just in the Gullah's sigils. You can find it elsewhere as well. But it's very cut and dry. I mean, the sigils that I studied are written primarily in Arabic, particularly the slave manumission documents. They're very formulaic. Um, they mention basically the slave's name, um, his father's name, uh, where he's from, and then they give a physical description, which can also be quite interesting. You can get a lot of information from that, but it's all very formulaic. Um, so you can figure out, for instance, the types of manumission and the type of work to some degree that they're engaged in, who their owners are, sometimes how much they're getting paid for their work, you can even understand, um, from different types of manumission contracts, tedbir contract in particular. So that's the kind of information you can get out of the sigils. You don't have a great deal of litigation, uh, in the the documents that I've looked at. I mean, I know in other uh, sigils, in Uskudar, for instance, you have a lot more sort of uh, disputes and, and problems. In Galata, it's primarily, um, you know, slave owners going to court and registering um, a tadbir manumission contract or uh, a contract that's, not, not so much a contract, but a, a manumission um, out of charitable reasons or an umwalid or, or something like this. So you don't see slaves arguing with each other, for instance. You do see some intermarriage between different seafaring slave-owning families, which is quite interesting. So people who were trading in slaves... Um, tend, I mean, in Galata anyway, I found a couple of cases where they seem to have intermarried and kind of shared resources, um, you know, sort of big slave dealers who were dealing like hundreds and hundreds of slaves, where you don't even see the slave's name, they're just listed as like 100 esirs or, you know, whatever, kefere esirler or something like this. So um, they would tend to intermarry. So you definitely have a slave dealing community and a slave owning community, whether you have a slave community is something that we, I'm not sure that we have the, I mean, maybe we have the sources for it and I just haven't found them, but it's difficult to get that out of the sigils themselves. Of course. And mm -hmm. just one more question. Even after, uh, in the sigils, or at least mm -hmm. maybe have some other evidence of this, did the identity of being a slave mm -hmm. uh, continue even after they were manumitted or freed? Right. Well, this is a huge question. And one of the things, I mean, I kind of regret it now, but one of the big questions that was very popular while I was doing my PhD was this question of, identity um, and sort of what constitutes an Ottoman identity, what are the possible processes of kind of cultural assimilation that a slave might go through, especially if he was a skilled slave and especially in uh, skilled at seafaring or shipbuilding or rope making where he would be of great economic value to the Ottoman Empire in sort of the, the late or mid to late, you know, uh, 16th century. Um, so you would 
assume that the Ottoman society of Galata would want to integrate, I mean, to use modern terminology, um, these groups into at least a household or a kind of economic network. Um, so kind of based on that assumption, um, I read the the court records um, as kind of documents of, of assimilation. So a lot of the slave owners themselves are Ibn Abdullah, which would suggest that they are themselves converts, if not former slaves. And in some of the captivity accounts, we find that the seafaring sort of captains, um, and I should just mention that most of the slaves are owned by uh, men who have titles associated with um, seafaring activities. So they're all Kaptan or Kaptan Ederia, or the, these sorts of names. My, I would conjecture that uh, skilled slaves tended to be integrated into a sort of uh, seafaring uh, society based in Galata where it didn't necessarily matter if you're a manumitted slave or you're a converted Christian because your main skill is as a sailor or as a captain or as a, mm -hmm. as a shipbuilder. Again, this is primarily conjecture from reading about this for, for years and years. Um, but in terms of whether their identity as a slave continued after their manumission, um, in terms of maybe patronage within a household, sure. it's definitely possible. And you come across certain inheritance inventories in the Galata Sigils where it's mentioned that this you know, person, you know, Murad ibn Abdullah, whoever he happens to be, um, is a manumitted slave of the deceased and he's also going to serve as the wakil, you know, the, the person who's responsible for dealing with the legal issues um, after the person's death. So it's clear that a relationship between former owners and slaves continued. And there's a huge sociological literature on that, on why that's the case. And I could go on yeah, about that for hours if you want. And <laughs> it, 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 that comes up a lot in some of our other episodes. You know, we did that episode mm -hmm. with Zoe about mulberry trees and inheritance in Lebanon. Mm. And in, in that case, you found prominent families um, choosing to endow uh, wakfs mm -hmm. to uh, slaves. That includes concubines, female mm -hmm. slaves, not only limited to men. Mm -hmm. um, and you, it, this question of household... It's interesting for me mm -hmm. because um, one of the tropes we hear is that, well, in in contrast to the Atlantic world mm -hmm. where plantation slavery was the dominant, you know, practice, uh, slavery in the Ottoman world was predominantly domestic slavery. It wasn't agricultural slavery, but rather this, the stereotype would be to be like ser serving as a servant in a home. Now, the individuals you're talking about certainly wouldn't fall into that category, but um, are they part of a like a household, like a couple or some kind of yeah? I, I would structure argue like that? I would argue that they're part of a household economy, certainly, um, because they. I mean, and they do fall under a different. I mean, they're not exactly domestic slaves. They're skilled workers who are serving as. I mean, if we're using sort of Western legal terminology, indentured labor sort of between inverted commas, in Islamic juridical terms, their legal status is that of slave. It's unequivocal. But maybe a, a, you know, an easier way of thinking about it for non-specialists is to think of them as indentured laborers. Like many of them are serving in tadbir contracts, which means that their term of slavery is limited either by an amount of time or an amount of money they have to provide. Um, so typically in the Gala decisions, I mean, most slaves are manumitted uh, you can calculate according to sort of how much they're required to pay by each season, are typically manumitted between two to eight years on average. So it's, it can be quite a brief period of slavery um, that I argue uh, may have served also as a period of cultural and linguistic and religious assimilation so that upon their manumission, they could, you know, sort of integrate themselves into, 
into Galata society. Well, can I ask where they live in Galata? That's a brilliant question. I mean, we know from captivity accounts that many of them actually lived in the Teresane, but uh, in terms of my slaves that I studied, I don't... Yeah, I know. That's how I refer to them, yeah. <laughs> that always... <laughs> I do it completely unironically, but that's, <laughs> that's what I call them. I don't know where my slaves lived exactly. Um, whether they lived in their owner's households, whether they lived in uh, their place of work, whether they had other accommodation. I, I'm just not uh, sure. I couldn't find any any evidence about that. It would be fascinating to know whether they were... Whether, I mean, I know that some of the manumitted ones, it would seem, were part, were sort of residents in a household. Um, but though they maybe uh, were sort of special or had a special relationship with their, their former owners. So I can't, I can't say, unfortunately. Uh, so just to jump back to the economic structure of it, mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned, again, this Tidbir contract is a sort mm -hmm. of wage, mm -hmm. or is it a sort of a salary? Like, well, I mean, how exactly does it work? What it is, is the slave actually has to pay his owner a certain amount of money. And it's often um, dictated in installments. And they can either be monthly or seasonal. In many cases in the Galata registers, they're seasonal installments. And during the sailing season, they have to pay much, much, much more during the season when the Ottoman Navy is not active, which immediately would suggest that they're engaged in some kind of maritime activities. So basically, you can calculate what they must have been getting paid as workers by looking at how much they had to in turn pay their owners toward their freedom. So their owners would pay them a sum. And their then they owners would pay wouldn't them pay them anything. No, they would pay their owners toward their but freedom. But where do they get the money from? Presumably they're working in the in the Tersane building ships. I see, okay. Yeah. So the owner, it's almost like an investment. The owners are not absolutely. owning these businesses absolutely. and then employing these people as forced or... Yeah, it's a business, uh, absolutely, okay. yeah. Mm. Well, that resonates with some of the previous discussions we've had about how there's actually very um, complex and differentiated... Uh, legal structures and practices surrounding slavery uh, in the Ottoman world. The, this Tedbir contract is just one example of uh, how there are many categories. Uh, there's many types of, of slavery, we could say. Could you talk a little bit more about, within the legal framework, how are slaves classified? Uh, where do we see qualification for manumission? How does that manumission process work? Could you yeah, sure um, and actually, this is kind of related to um, in part legal questions and the application of the law on a daily basis, but at the same time, a close reading of these um, documents can also give us a little tiny bit of insight, possibly into the stories of the slaves um, so just to answer your your first question about the actual kind of contracts themselves, um, they're based on Hanafi Shurut manuals. Um, so they take a very clear and formulaic form that's actually quite ancient in many respects. Um, this later morphs into Turkish in, in sort of later centuries. Um, but in, in our period, it's still in Arabic, like sort of taken almost directly from like, uh, you know, Al-Marganani's Shurut Manual and Al-Tahawi's Shurut Manual. So, I mean, it's, it's almost identical to um, much earlier forms. And in order for a contract to be valid, there are certain, con certain clauses that have to be present, um, one of which is a description of the goods, basically. And in this case, it's a person. So, uh, in order for a valid manumission contract, you have to have the name of the owner and you have to have a physical description of the slave as well as his name. And for a tadbir contract, you also have to have the oral consent of the slave to the contract. 
Um, so, and then of course it has to be witnessed and, and so on and so forth. But the, the interesting part of all this is the fact that the name and physical description of the slave is required as well as his place of origin because that gives us a, a tiny bit of insight at least into some of the stories of these slaves. So for instance, in the Galata sigils, a lot of the slaves, um, even the ones who have, I mean, especially the ones who have Tadbir contracts, have kept their original names. Um, so you can trace where they are from in many cases. Um, it's very clear that many of them are, are Spanish or Italian, what we would today describe as Spanish or Italian. When you say names, it includes like a... a the patronymic, like the father's name, the last the name. name. No, not just the first name. And what's also interesting is that one of the scribes, particularly in the third Galata Sigil, um, is really, really meticulous about um, transcribing the sort of uh, you know Italian or French or Spanish names of the slaves. Like he vocalizes everything. He, you know, he's very, very, very careful with how he sort of writes the names of these slaves very carefully. And in other, other scribes are not. Like, they'll just sort of approximate something. Um, and a lot of them have very common Italian names, Vicenzo, Francesco, you know, these Andrea, these sorts of names. Um, I think you even have a Doria somewhere in there. I mean, it's very, very interesting. Like, you can actually find uh, kind of specific individuals. Um, and then you also have a physical description of the person, which can give you some indication of their history. For instance, a lot of the Circassian slaves are missing their ears, only the Circassian slaves. So, you know, it would suggest that there's some sort of practice of marking a slave that's going on in that particular part of the world that isn't happening elsewhere. So, I mean, I found myself writing, you know, part of a chapter about ears on Circassian slaves and, you know, sort of questioning what has happened to my life. But um, but it's sort of, uh, and <laughs> you know, if you're interested... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you're if you if you're interested in in the the vagaries of the ears of Circassian slaves and how Black Sea slaves are marked, um, but you also find things like um, people with burnt limbs or wounds or one eye, or and you get a lot of physical descriptions as well. So you have to describe the skin color, the eyebrows, the the eye color, um, the hair color, the stature, the complexion. All these things have to be described in the physical description. So what you actually wind up um, having is. Uh, sort of the way that Ottoman scribes and bureaucrats perceived their slaves physically. So you can write a sort of social history of that alone. Mm -hmm. Like, how are these slaves described? Why are they described that way? You know, how are their names transcribed? So I talk a bit about that in my dissertation. And I try to connect it to other genres of, of literature, contemporary literature. Because reading the sigils by themselves and trying to write about the ethnicities of slaves and how slaves are perceived is, is difficult. Mm -hmm. So if you look at other types of literature, like firaset or ilm al-firesa, you Which can... Which is uh, physiognomy. Physiognomy, yeah, yeah, physiognomy. Um, so sort of discerning the, the inner characteristics of a human being by looking at their, their physical appearance. Um, I mean, actually, firesa itself is a, a prophetic gift from God that allows you to to penetrate someone's soul but only like prophets and saints can do that and the rest of us just have to study Firasa treatises where we say oh well if a guy has a monobrow it means that he's good at accounting so if I have a slave with a monobrow I should put him in charge of my defters basically whereas if I have a slave who has you know a wheatish complexion and stooping shoulders oh he'll make a good cook so I should put him in my kitchen so basically I mean there are other ways of understanding Firasa but one of the more cynical ways of understanding it is as a method of, of uh, managing power, really, um, within a household. 
uh, and a way of reading people, of classifying people, and, and of manipulating a, a servile class. There are other much more optimistic readings of Firesa that other scholars are working on, but because I work on slavery, obviously my interpretation of this genre of literature is, uh, is geared towards sort of social inequalities and, and power relations. So well, I think it's a really interesting point because, I mean, for those of us who study the Ottoman Empire, when we try to find things like ethnographies, mm-hmm. Ottoman descriptions of the other... Mm-hmm you know, foreign peoples and so forth, we really don't have that present. And I think you're, and where I found it, and it seems that you found it much more in these Galata sigils, is that in the description of slaves, in the attempt to describe them, you have a sort of kind of proto-ethnography and attempt to really describe all sorts of peoples and their characteristics. I would say the sigils are just one, like, bureaucratic and legal manifestation of actually quite a sophisticated tradition of what you can call ethnography or we can call a kind of neo-platonic tradition of attempting to understand and thereby manipulate one's fellow man. Um, So I would actually say the Ottoman tradition doesn't, it's actually quite developed. I mean, it it develops out of a lot of Ottoman Firasa treatises are translations of earlier Arabic treatises, Persian treatises, um, you know, mirrors for princes, guides for how to run a household, how to run a kingdom. Um, So... I would actually say that we we have a wealth of those. And you have like all sorts of poetry, like the Zenan Name is the most famous example, where you have descriptions of um, the sort of amorous qualities of various slave women according to their, or, or servile women, not necessarily slave women, um, according to their... Uh, where the, to, according to their origins, um, you have something very similar in Mustafa Ali, where he talks about how different um, uh, sort of ethnicities are suited for different types of work and different ty- servile work primarily, and also for different types of uh, sort of lovemaking. You know, Alb- Albanians are are fierce, but you know, loving. Uh, Russians are cold. You know, I mean, I don't remember exactly what they are, but he has a sort of you know stereotype associated with each of these different ethnicities. So I would say the Ottoman tradition is actually quite developed in that sense and and because it was such a, a a mixed place i mean i think it's it's natural to kind of you know deal in these categories even if they weren't necessarily taken very seriously um you know maybe they were maybe they weren't we we can't really know but they certainly exist yes and you can find them <laughs> in the literature i mean i saw a presentation at the wokemas conference last mm-hmm. uh summer in ankara by mm-hmm. gula yilmaz i think and she talked about how this process of categorization, this detailed description is also part of the devshirme. Absolutely. Uh, when yeah, they yeah. go to the villages and get the boys, they write very mm-hmm. detailed description mm-hmm. of each boy, including mm-hmm. the scars and all of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So it's something that pervades. And, and we also see it in, in the uh, illustrated manuscripts, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. The people are are drawn with their particular mm-hmm. ethnic features or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, I would, rather than, I mean, in my own work, I start off understanding these categories of jeans or asl as ethnographic features but they're not even really ethnographic so much as they are physiognomic and it i mean i imagine with the dev shirme it's not something i know much about but i would imagine that it's a similar process of enslavement and thereby having to to describe and and, and categorize a particular object i think th- yeah i think that mm-hmm. um the one of the scholars said i forgot who it is but had had indicated they were looking for boys who had physical mm-hmm. markers of being um, 
combative. Yeah, 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 yeah. Essentially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. scars or yeah. something that would show that they fight yeah, or yeah. like to fight. Yeah. So they'd probably read a Razi and like look where he says, oh well, you know, if he has a pale complexion with this kind of nose and this kind of stance, it means that he's combative. And so you know, I mean, there is like a developed and, and quite ancient tradition of this. Yeah, literature. Yeah. Of yeah, course, yeah. I wasn't mm-hmm. suggesting that. Yeah. I was just saying that in the discussion of slaves... I wasn't accusing you of suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> in the discussion of slaves, you know, we find uh, this much more than, say, in geographies mm. or where you would find it necessarily in, in the European literature. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so just one more question about mm-hmm. this. Like, do you ever, like in some of the later sources I look at about mm-hmm. slaves, when they mention them, in a sense, uh, the physiognomic aspects of it fall away, mm. and you just get kind of a hierarchy of slaves based on their, for instance, their capacity to convert to Islam, mm. their moral qualities, mm-hmm. and they're just saying, you know, that these people, like Nabi, for instance, says, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Austrians and mm-hmm. Hungarians and uh, Frank and stuff like that, they're mm-hmm. all just traitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only, you know, an Ambaza girl's okay. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That sort yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. But the rest of them, you know, you can't mm-hmm. trust any of these people. Uh-huh. And it's basically really the moral qualities that come out mm. in the end. But mm-hmm. And that certainly exists in, in the earlier period as well. And the main purpose of this is to understand the moral. I mean, the main purpose of physiognomy of, of firaset or animal firesa as a genre is to understand the the moral qualities, the inner qualities, the hidden qualities of a human being. If you're a slave owner, it's so that you can make use of them. If you're a bureaucrat, it's so that you can, you know, take advantage of your colleagues and get ahead, you know. I mean, but I mean, and in some cases, it's also so that you can you can study the good moral qualities of someone as, as an example. I mean, for instance, the Shemayel Name, um, where you have portraits of Ottoman sultans. That's basically a work of physiognomy as mm-hmm. well. Um, in the sense of admiring someone's physiognomy um, and seeking to to learn from it rather than you know taking advantage of a of a slave for what you perceive as his you know weaknesses or strengths. Can you give us some examples of the, the these physiognomic? You know, what are these Afrenjis? Oh, I you know actually I don't. I mean, I can tell you what they're described as, but kind of every physiognomy treatise says something different about what it means to have you know a reddish complexion versus a monobrow versus dark hair. So I mean, every every treatise. I mean, in my experience, anyway, um, you know, kind of will have its own own version of things. But the typical descriptors um, that are used are the eyebrows, whether they're joined or separate. Um, the complexion, and you have kind of a limited number of terms to describe that. Height and eye color. And those are the main characters. And scars, of course, those are very important as well. Um, either, I mean, there's some argument that, I mean, that, and I think I take the the sigils a bit too far in saying that, oh, this is so closely related to physiognomy. Like, it could sure. be that, you know, that the Shurut tradition draws on the Firesa tradition, and that's why these physical descriptions are present, and they don't mean anything more than that. You know, they're just fulfilling a condition in the in the manumission well, contract. We can know? play, let's say, give the opposite, or yeah. let's look at it in a more practical way, mm. you know. Of well, identity, let's, yeah. Identity, let's, I, you know, uh-huh. when slaves escape. Yeah, exactly. When you need to identify yeah. your, yeah. you know, uh-huh. middle height mm. man with a brown. With one eye, yeah. With one eye and a yeah. unibrow and a <laughs> tawny yeah, complexion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Then you can track them down. I mean, right. I mean, how, let's, I guess, maybe transition to this question of practicalities, escapes, like, practicalities yeah. and escape mm. slaves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, runaways, do those come up? Yeah, well, I don't, I don't encounter any runaways in the Galata Sigils. Um, but I, I have 
it has occurred to me that you know perhaps I'm making too much of this argument of of the descriptions and that it might just be I would I would argue not so much in the case of the this particular set of slaves Galata slaves um, who are skilled who who found quite well paying work in Istanbul many of whom have converted. Um, they're not going to want to escape. I mean, especially if they're in the process of being manumitted in two years and they've got a new Muslim name and, you know, nice job. Um, it, it, I, I think that these descriptions um, in many cases would have been used actually to prevent re-enslavement, which often happened. So you could pull out your document and say, ah, okay, like I speak Turkish with a funny accent and my name is originally Francesco, but I'm a Muslim now and I've been manumitted, so you can't re-enslave me. And you could pull out your document and say, look, this is me. I have one eye and a monobrow and brown hair and I'm, you know, orta boylu or whatever. Um, so I think it was, and you know, as, as you know, like often they would receive their own copy of the of the manumission document to keep on their, on their person. Um, and so... I think that was sort of a way of pulling it out and saying, ah, oh, look, no, 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 I'm I'm either in the process of being manumitted or I have been manumitted, you know. Do any so. of those manumission documents that were given to slaves survive? Like in no, the European I've, side? I've found other um, sort of independent sigil documents that have been handed out, um, but, you know, in various other archives that are scattered around, obviously not in the, the Miftuluk archive. Um, but I haven't been able to find a manumission document. I found other documents, property documents, and so on that that have uh, you know have been issued by the court. Um, but I haven't haven't been able to find a manumission document, unfortunately. Well, but it is kind of remarkable what this uh, very mm-hmm. limited set of sigils from a very specific time period mm-hmm. in a very specific place in the Ottoman Empire mm-hmm. tells us n- not only about the life in that place and mm-hmm. you know the life of the lives of slaves as well, but even touches on these mm-hmm. questions of. Uh, uh, maybe uh, perspectives on how people see the other, as Nir mm-hmm. was saying, mm-hmm. or uh, the body, mm-hmm. for example. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And one of the, uh, you know, sort of to kind of conclude, one of the other things, you know, besides the obvious reality that it is possible to study mm. s- oh, yes, very much documents, so. is there's yeah. a lot more material there than has been acknowledged, I think, perhaps. Loads, loads. Um, but mm. one of the other things that came out is right across the mm. Golden Horn, of course, we have another mm-hmm. population of uh, slaves, of mm-hmm. course, as associated with the uh, Ottoman palace. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and, and the lives of those individuals, while maybe having some overlap with mm-hmm. what you've talked about here, sounds like mm-hmm. very different, even though they're in the same city. Mm-hmm. We're talking about mm-hmm. two different slave communities with mm-hmm. different practices in play, yeah. different economy. Well, one of the things I always bang on and on and on about every time I go to a conference about slavery is that it almost makes no sense to talk about slavery as a single thing sure. in the Ottoman Empire, or just generally if we're discussing slavery. I mean, even just if we even just take Istanbul, not even the Ottoman Empire, just Istanbul as an example, um, there are so many different types of slavery, different types of manumission, um, that it's it's almost impossible to... Um, discuss slavery as a whole. I mean, I would argue actually for more focused micro-historical studies. I mean, um, I don't know if you know Betul Ipshirli. Um, she did, a, did an excellent study of concubines, just looking at, at ex-palace concubines. And I mean, that's one oh. type of slavery, one type of document that has a very specific manifestation. My sort of skilled seafaring slaves are one manifestation. You might have had, I don't know, craftsmen, uh, builders. They were one type of slave who were treated in a different way and issued with a certain type of contract. Um, same goes for, you know, umwalids, umiveleds in, in private households. I mean, there, there are a million different types of slavery. And the Ottoman and Arabic and Persian terminology of slavery is much richer 
than the English vocabulary that we use to discuss it in academia. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I always argue for is actually using the Ottoman, using the Arabic vocabulary. Yeah, different categories. Yeah, to, to, to describe these different categories and not just assume that, ah, you know, someone who's taken in the Devshirme is the same as a seafaring slave in Galata, is the same as a concubine, is the same as, you know, a merchant slave who gets to travel and handle large amounts of money. I mean, they're all very, very different and working under different conditions. And so... Well, as mm. Ehud Toledano yeah. points out, I think, in, in one of his works, the, mm-hmm. the only thing or mm-hmm. the main thing that slaves in, in different mm-hmm. parts of the world and times and places have is in common is that mm-hmm. they're they're owned. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think beyond that, just like land can be owned in mm-hmm. lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. People have been owned in lots mm-hmm. of different ways throughout history. And, mm-hmm. of course, using such flat terms can sometimes mm-hmm. um, limit what we can understand from mm-hmm. the topic. Mm-hmm. Or oversimplify it, yeah. for that matter. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about Galata, but how, how does it compare, if we look at other studies or compare other compare this to other studies around mm-hmm. the Mediterranean, maybe even other parts of the Ottoman Empire? Well, the, other, the, other, the other sort of um, slave or phenom- sort of examples of slavery that have been studied in the Mediterranean are um, the Italian peninsula. And you also have, for a slightly earlier period, um, kind of Genoese and Venetian colonies in the Levant and Black Sea, and their experiences of owning slaves in those parts of the world. Um, one thing I would really love to do, actually, is a, is undertake a, a comparison. Um, I mean, a lot of the... I mean, for instance, the Tadbir contract actually derives from uh, a Greek form of slavery called paramone and so there are actually similarities in kind of uh, certain aspects of various laws in Italian city-states and Islamic law and there's also so for instance a bit of influence of Islamic slavery practices on Italian merchant communities who are based in the Islamic world so they begin to do things like um, allow their concubines and children to inherit money uh, from them, which is you know unheard of back in the mainland Italian peninsula. Um, so I mean that's quite interesting, like looking at these sort of seeping cultural practices and and how practices of slavery um, sort of go across religious boundaries and, and geographical boundaries. If we were actually to compare, say, Istanbul to Venice, um, or I mean Florence, it's not a port, but they had a quite a significant slave population. Um, one of the main differences that you notice is that there's a lot less um, kind of absorption of slaves into the population in uh, in the Italian peninsula. There's not; they don't have the same mechanisms, like legal mechanisms of manumission that you have in Islamic law, um, whereby uh, it's basically encouraged to manumit your slaves after a, a rather brief period. So you find that um, slaves are uh, either just not manumitted; they're not integrated; they don't really intermarry. Again, my experience is with earlier, slightly earlier time periods than the 16th century, say like the 15th century, for instance, in Italy, even the 14th century. Um, so you find um, huge differences in in some instances and great similarities in others. Um, as you would expect. So, I mean, that's definitely something that that requires um, more study. One of the other interesting things that you find is in um, various Venetian and Genoese notary documents discussing ownership of slaves, the physical descriptions of the slaves in sort of late medieval Latin and kind of medieval Italian are almost identical to the Arabic descriptions in terms of the order 
that the different physical aspects of the slave are are listed uh, in the in the document. So I would argue for some kind of um, Mediterranean uh, sort of slave description, conventions, yeah. yeah, conventions um, across languages and and geographic regions. And I don't know how that came to be the case, but it's something I I really wanted to write an article about one time, and then I mean, sort of didn't. Um, <laughs> but you know, the material is is all there. But it's sort of picking apart these kind of philological issues across, you know, Latin and Arabic and Ottoman. I mean, it would be great fun um, uh, to me, uh, probably not to the readers of this article, but, you know. Well, no, it opens up a lot of interesting topics. Slavery is an inherently cross-cultural thing because it involves the movement of people and the intersection of different legal spaces. You know, a big thing in the Americas was the the way that slavery was practiced in the Atlantic went against the way slavery was practiced in the Mediterranean and uh, in Africa, where there were long-standing legal and cultural traditions surrounding it, which, yeah. which is what, mm-hmm. I guess, made the experience uh, mm. much, much worse, although in, in it's the hard Americas. to compare these things. Yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. Very different, certainly. I mean, in the Ottoman Empire, especially in this particular period when the economy is very strong, the Navy is very active, you sense that this was almost a kind of forced labor recruitment in many respects, um, especially with the, how quickly they're manumitted, how relatively well they're paid, um, that the Frankish slaves don't even convert about 50% of the time, um, and they're still manumitted. So, I mean, it, it almost seems as though the Ottoman method of slavery in this particular instance um, was kind of, I mean, dare I use the word lenient? But, I mean, it seems that it was um, more aimed at, at bringing labor in and then actually integrating it into kind of a maritime economy rather than just pure exploitation, um, like you see in, in say, um, the Atlantic models of slavery. Or even, like, mm-hmm. later in the uh-huh. 17th, 18th century in Istanbul when, mm-hmm. you know, criminals, other people are forced to be galley slaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind that of exists much more as, punitive. That, that exists as well in the period that we're studying, but just not with these slaves because they seem to have possessed some particular skill, valuable skill, related to seafaring, that meant that they were manumitted and seemed to have been treated relatively decently, had legal documents, consented to their contracts. So they certainly weren't galley slaves. They were slaves, but doing something of of greater value that that required more knowledge and more technical ability. Well, Noor, I want to thank you for sharing uh, your research with us today, taking time away from your activities as curator uh, during your visit to Istanbul to uh, talk about this uh, exciting research, which I think... Uh, opens up a lot of different topics for those who are thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm thinking mainly of graduate students, undergraduate students, thinking of their own projects. It shows you, this this little micro-study shows you all the different angles on the topic of slavery that maybe you don't get when you take that broader perspective. So I really appreciate you uh, doing that with us today. Hey, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Now, for those who are interested in learning more about the topic, we have a select bibliography on our website, which uh, Dr. Soberskhan has provided to us, as well as a link to her uh, academia.edu page where you can check out the the dissertation, download it, read it, as well as her book, other publications. Buy the book. Buy or, the book. Or, or, of course, buy the book. <laughs> on which, Amazon. Which uh, we have links for all of that on our on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com. You can also get in touch with our uh, Facebook community. Now, I think almost 19,000 strong in terms of followers and more casual engagers on Facebook and other uh, social media. Thanks to all of you for tuning in this episode. Join us next time. And until then, take care.